Welcome to The Experts Speak, a product of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Jay Goldman started his career as a dentist, and eventually during his dental career, he became chair of the oral facial clinic at New York University. It's called the Oral Facial Chronic Pain Program and TMJ Disorders. We thought it would be very interesting to understand why you ended up being a psychotherapist. I think it would be a good idea to go right from the beginning. And the beginning was as I finished up dental school, there was some elective time that we had. And I, I'm looking at the list of things that I could participate in. And one said, headaches and the jaw. And I had absolutely no idea what that was all about. So I signed up. And for a couple of weeks, I was introduced to the new field of pepomandibular disorders, which was not taught in the dental school. In fact, it wasn't taught in any of the 50 dental schools in the country. And I was privileged, actually, to have an opportunity to start learning about this field. So that was my first exposure. When I got out of dental school, I worked for a group of dentists, and I said to them, you know, I had some experience, and I told them of the experience. In fact, one of my patients was actually my wife, who suffered with terrible migraines, and nothing was really working for her. There was no tryptin family of drugs at the time, and her father was a physician, her uncle, her brother, three physicians, and nobody was helping her with her migraines. I came home from one of my trainings, and I said, you know, let's examine you for one of these things they call TMJ disorders. Sure enough, she did have that. I treated her, I injected trigger point injections into a few of the muscles, I made her a bite plate, and she hasn't had so-called migraines since. She never did have migraines, it was never a vascular headache, it was actually a muscle contraction headache from the muscles of the jaw, and that was my first exposure. Anyway, the, the group of dentists that I worked for, when I told them I can bring this discipline into their office, they said, no way, absolutely no way, these people are crazy, and I didn't know what they were talking about. I had treated a dozen people in this program, and nobody was crazy, at least in my opinion. I found out later, I can kind of flash forward, when I got onto the staff of uh, Mount Sinai Medical School in New York City, I was invited into the curriculum committee meetings, you know, where they have to decide what are they going to teach, what are they going to leave out in four years. So I raised my hand and I said, well, why don't we teach about temporomandibular disorders? After all, it's not teeth and it's not gums, it's really muscle and, and bone and cartilage and ligaments and tendons. It's an orthopedic problem. But they said, no, nope, we're going to let the dental schools take care of that. Some years later, working at NYU Dental School, I again sat on the curriculum committee and they said, no, nah, it's actually an orthopedic problem. We'll let the medical schools teach it. And that's the history of this problem. Decades passing and physicians and dentists were not learning about this temporomandibular joint disorder problem course, eventually that evolved into something we call orofacial pain, O-R-O, -O, orofacial pain. And it included a lot of neuropathic problems, sympathetically maintained pain, not just TMJ disorders. Today, there are departments that are handling this. Way back in the early days, that's not what was going on. For me to learn, I would make a personal effort. If I read a book about temporomandibular disorders, for example, the authors were from LA, White Memorial Hospital, as I recall. So I would go out to Los Angeles and spend a week or two with these people. And I went to London. I went to San Diego, Chile. I went all over the place to learn and to teach myself. I attended medical conferences to learn about connective tissue problems and rheumatological problems. But little by little, I kind of educated myself. That's kind of the history. But what about these people being crazy? 
I never really understood that until I realized nobody was learning about this problem. And in fact, back in the mid-80s, there was a study and they found out that the average patient searching for relief averaged seven visits to seven different physicians and no referrals made to a dentist because the physicians didn't know who to refer to. These poor patients were being jockeyed around from doctor to doctor year after year after year and not finding any relief of their pain. Today, thankfully, that's not the case anymore. But back in the early days, so these people were called crazy because they had no relief. They, they were all told their problems in their head. They were very frustrated and they lived with their pain. And that obviously really got under your skin. Sure did. And interestingly, one day I'm walking out to my car in the driveway and my neighbor was doing the same and he was a psychologist and he yelled over to me. So Jay, I want to talk to you. I, I, I want to get invited to be on your pain team, the hospital. And I said, well, first of all, it's not my pain team. I was just a little dental component. This was at Mount Sinai. I said, but why? You're a psychologist. Why would you want to be on our pain team, which had 30 physicians and six dentists? And he said, we need to chat. And he came over to my house that night. And that was my first exposure to the emotional component to chronic pain. He taught me a lot. I hired him, by the way. I worked with him. He was on my staff. For 27 years, I learned quite a bit about the emotional component of chronic pain. And even as a dentist, not everybody wanted to go to him. He was in my office, but I had about a 90% compliance rate. But what about those patients who would they say, I don't want to go see a shrink. I don't want to go to the psychologist. So I would ask him, you know, what do I do with these people? And he'd say, teach them some breathing techniques, teach them imagery, help if you took some courses in hypnosis, which I did. And so even as a dentist, I started crossing over a little bit into what the psychologists would do in terms of guided imagery, hypnosis, and of course, breathing techniques and meditation. How much of a difference did it make in your patients? They loved it. It made such a big difference. Success rate went sky high. We were addressing what really was the problem that maintained their pain. Their emotionality maintained the physical pain. I'll tell you something really interesting. About 10 years into working with this psychologist, I called him into my office and I said, we're going to change things. And he says, oh, I'm getting fired. And I says, no, I'm getting fired. You're getting promoted. He goes, you can't get fired. It's your office. And I said, well, here's what we're going to do. Typically, what we did was when physical medicine and dental procedures wasn't helping the patient, we referred the patient to you. He says, yep, that's right. I said, well, now we're going to reverse things. When the chronic pain, not acute, but when the chronic pain patient comes in, we're going to refer the patient to you first. After you treat the patient, if there's residual pain, you refer the patient back to us and we'll do the trigger points and the bite plates and prescriptions and all the other traditional stuff. That was a big shift in my practice. And again, the success rate went up. I brought that into NYU when I was director of the clinic. And the psychologist played a very major role. So when it was time for me to retire from dentistry, and that was because, by the way, I've had five shoulder surgeries. It wasn't really by choice. But when I left practicing dentistry, I decided then to shift over to the mental health field and do all those things that I was exposed to for those 27 years from this pain psychologist. Went back to school, became eventually a licensed clinical social worker specializing in chronic pain. I can only imagine how interesting it is that when people come to you, it's almost an odd mixture to be a therapist and a dentist. How do they respond to you? 
Yeah, they sure are. And uh, because of my knowledge as a dentist, my knowledge, for example, of inflammation and my knowledge of pharmacology, and then doing the mental health piece, it, it's a terrific you know, union. It really is. Maybe you synergize each other. People accept it and we get great results. How do you get started? You're a dentist. You have so many backgrounds that are different. What do you look for when a patient comes to you? Yeah, that's really a great question. And, and remember now, as a mental health a psychotherapist, I'm treating chronic pain from head to toe. It's not just orofacial pain anymore. So if somebody comes in with back pain, neck pain, migraines, orofacial, TMJ disorders, doesn't really matter what the problem is. Almost always with chronic pain, and you mentioned it in your, in your question, we look at trauma. We look at adversity in childhood, you know, many different pain assessments, but the bottom line is there's usually something that's causing the maintenance of, you know, why didn't this stuff heal? Why didn't the inflammation go away? What's keeping this patient in that loop of chronic pain? And more often than not, it would be trauma, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. And remember I said neglect. Sometimes you have great parents. They report, oh, my parents were wonderful. And what happened? They both worked 50 and 60 hours a week. And the individual kind of fended for him or herself, or maybe our nanny raised them. But there was not a good attachment. And that's a very major problem today, where there was no attachment in childhood. And he or she grows up, and maybe they develop a borderline personality disorder or some other problem. And with it, chronic pain. It's just very, very common and actually goes back to the childhood in many of the cases. So I have to ask you a question. If someone comes to you and says, doctor, I had no pain before the auto accident. Someone else hit me. This is a result of someone else's negligence. Do you have the same approach? How do you deal with this type of situation? Yes, we do the same approach. And look, it's not always childhood trauma. It's often the case. Sometimes, I have to be honest with you, sometimes we're not 100% positive with the etiology. They were in a, in a car accident, they had some cuts and bruises, or maybe they even broke a bone. Why is there continuing pain? It used to be called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, RSD. Now they call it complex regional pain syndrome. And we don't really know why that is the case. What caused that? Well, initially, it would be a crushing injury or laceration or bones breaking, but then there's healing. The bone healed perfectly. The cuts heal perfectly. And yet there's pain. There's redness, there's swelling, and there's this maintenance of the pain. So we have certain procedures, even though maybe childhood was fine. We have certain protocols today, one called EMDR. Can you explain that and give us the definition? Yes. EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. EMDR is amazing. It was working, but we didn't know really how it was working until about Four or five years ago, a psychiatrist slash researcher put somebody into a brain scan, a functional MRI, while doing EMDR. And he actually saw what was taking place. The EMDR process actually triggers or stimulates the amygdala part of the brain. And the amygdala alerts us to danger, but it does other things too. It houses unresolved emotional pain. And during EMDR, the activity in the brain moves this information actually out of the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex of the brain where logic and reasoning takes place. I'm giving a very simplistic explanation, but that's basically what happens. We, we move stuff that's stuck inside the amygdala. And what is that stuff? It could be, I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm shameful, I'm guilty. There's all kinds of stuff that doesn't resolve over time. 
even when someone's in an accident and there's pain. Sometimes they feel their body's betraying them. There's all kinds of explanations, but it sits inside the amygdala. And EMDR releases that information, moves it over where it can be adaptively resolved, and that takes place in the prefrontal cortex. And I have to tell you, globally, and in my practice too, the success rate is 87.5%. And there was almost, see, the 19 or 20 clinical studies with EMDR. It's accepted by the American Psychiatry Association, by the American Psychology Association, not in the beginning, but now it is, by the World Health Organization and so forth. It's a wonderful type of therapy. And what we have found, that besides treating mental health conditions, we use EMDR for physical chronic pain. Uh, one very dramatic example would be phantom limb pain, where somebody's missing a leg or an arm or an ear or any part of the body, and yet the pain still hurts. How does your foot hurt if it's not there? So they call that phantom limb pain. And this procedure of EMDR actually treats that over 90% success. So it's wonderful to have this as a therapeutic tool, if you will. I hope it's accurate, but I've heard that the Israelis, their military doctors use EMDR a great deal and with a lot of success. Any notion of that? That's absolutely the truth, by the way. I've actually treated a number of Israeli soldiers. A lot of the research comes from Israel. There's a new protocol. So it used to be when you do EMDR, you're doing something that took place in the past. Let's just say a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. And then we're treating you now based on what happened in the past. The research from Israel set up something called the recent event protocol, meaning there could have been an explosion in a marketplace, and that day we're able to start treating people with a different type of protocol utilizing the EMDR. It brings up a very interesting idea that when someone goes to an emergency room and there's been a trauma, they'll refer to the reconstructive dentist, the orthopedist, whomever. Perhaps there should also be a referral to someone to deal with the chronic pain that may develop. Yeah, and you can extend that. First of all, that's absolutely the truth. So now you have a type of treatment that's going to help out with the patient. But how about those providing the treatment? You've got your first responders exposed to terrible trauma. They really didn't have in their training things they see in a car accident or in a fire or in a plane or a train crash. These people develop PTSD the same way that the patients do. And again, the, the EMDR could be used to help them as well. What about hypnosis or biofeedback? Are those still used in the world of treating chronic pain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Biofeedback is very effective. You know, I guess it's like the old 80-20. Not everybody's being helped by it. 20% in some studies, 80% in other studies. But yes, when you can feed back information to the patient, and they're able to utilize how their body feels and recognize how their body feels and apply it to when they feel tension and pain and when they don't feel tension and pain. And so you educate them and through the process of biofeedback, they can reduce their pain, especially migraines. Hypnosis, I'm trained in hypnosis, also called guided imagery. And in fact, I use that in the treatment protocol of EMDR. I use guided imagery and hypnosis during the EMDR. So I combine the two. It's very, very effective. Is there a length of time that this is necessary? Do they come to you for a couple of weeks? Or do they need to come back, shall we say, for booster shots? What a great question. Let me tell you what the statistics are. Somebody comes to me, let's say from 9-11, and they have terrible PTSD, they just made it out of the towers, and friends of theirs died, and they're having a terrible problem with PTSD, and flashbacks, and nightmares, and whatnot. 
That patient might be easy to treat, meaning three or four visits. If the childhood was positive, it was normal, if the attachment between that individual and his or her parents was a healthy, it's a relative problem to treat many, many years later. Uh, that is to treat the PTSD. However, in fact, the Army did a lot of research with this. Why does somebody come back with PTSD and another soldier does not? And they found out that if you're having a very traumatic childhood or a lot of adversity in the childhood, you're more prone to developing PTSD. And you're not going to treat them in three or four visits. Then it can be 10 or 20 visits to help them with or a stretched out treatment plan. We live in a time when many people are taking opioids, and unfortunately, many of them are taking them for the wrong reason. However, they are effective pain medications, and there's a time and there's a place for it. I think we need to please comment a little bit about the role of medications in the treatment of chronic pain. How do we find the balance between the verbal therapies, the cognitive therapies, and the role of medication? First of all, it's really important to always normalize for the patient and make them feel they're okay and they're not alone. And if they need medication, they need it. It's not because of a particular weakness. Many of the people that we treat start tapering patients off their medication because they're doing so well with the uh, EMDR approach or the cognitive behavioral approach or the hypnotherapeutic approach. So as the patient's feeling better, they'll get usually tapered off their medication. Some can't be tapered off the medication. They need it. It's available to them, and for whatever reason, no one gets treated 100%. Having 80% success, sometimes you need the medication to pull that 80% up a bit. I fear a certain cycle that, well, it's very important that we talk about the medications, but a lot of people do not have access to the psychological components that you're talking about. Maybe it doesn't exist locally. Maybe they live in an area where there's no one who has these skills. Maybe they can't afford it. How do you bring this sophistication to a broader environment, to a broader medical world? This is a very sophisticated process. It needs to be done with training and collaboration because you've seen both sides. You've seen both worlds with patients like this. Sure have. You know, the most important thing in psychotherapy which is the relationship between you and the patient. And in that relationship, a very non-judgmental relationship, you work with the patient to make them start to feel better about themselves. You happen to have used in your question the word defective. We don't want them to feel defective. We have to normalize them and make them feel that they're not defective. And in fact, one of the most common targets in the EMDR protocol is a patient feeling, I am defective. Now, someone can feel I'm defective because they lost an arm. They can feel defective because their loved one left them. They can feel defective because the medication's not working. And we utilize all of those targets in EMDR and eliminate that feeling, take that negative core belief, that negative cognition that these folks have, and eliminate that. Excellent. And I hope that when people are facing these, that they ask their doctors, ask their dentists, if there is anyone within a reasonable distance who can do this type of work. Jay Goldman is a dentist and a psychotherapist, and he has changed his career into dealing with chronic pain from a very real psychological perspective. Sir, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure.